Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. As many of you know, June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, and today's episode features Elizabeth Beth Smith Boven, Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Association Northeastern New York Chapter. Each year at this time, the Alzheimer's Association helps promote a global dialogue about Alzheimer's, which affects more than 6 million people across the U.S., two-thirds of them women. Today's episode coincides with the longest day, the summer solstice, a special event with thousands of participants from across the world create unique programs to raise funds and awareness for the care, support, and research efforts to combat Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. In our conversation today, Beth Smith-Boven focuses on the latest research the global, uh, for the global fight against this devastating disease. Covering the research landscape as a whole, she will highlight the latest major development, the recent approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration of a new drug, aducanumab, produced by Biogen as a treatment for Alzheimer's. This is the first FDA-approved therapy in almost 20 years that, while not a cure, may potentially delay cognitive decline from the disease compared to uh, current medications that only address symptoms. The FDA's decision is not without controversy, however, and its approval is conditional, requiring to prove that it works the way it's intended. Beth will provide a full picture of how the drug is being rolled out, how the therapy works, questions about its effectiveness and side effects, and what we know at this point about how it will be distributed, how people will get treatments, and how the high cost may be covered. Beth will also describe other significant research studies that examine how factors such as improved diet, increased exercise, and enhanced cognitive training and social activity may have a significant impact on reducing the risk of dementia. And Beth will explain the challenges of clinical trials and how members of the public can help advance Alzheimer's research by participating in these trials. That's a lot to cover, so let's get started with Beth smith Bobin. Beth, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Ron. I'm delighted to be here. Great, great. So listen, before we dive into the research issues, you've been involved in uh, Alzheimer's uh, service, you know, to our country about uh, dealing with Alzheimer's uh, for, what, over three decades, right? I have indeed. I had the privilege of working in a long-term care facility as my first job leaving college, entry-level social worker, and I found myself um, so connected to both people that were living with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers as I had the opportunity to meet so many of them working in that environment. And that really fueled me to learn more about the disease so that I could help those people and their caregivers. And that was really my initial interest was the social work side of this. Mm -hmm. But I 
began then to understand that there was more that we needed to do from a policy perspective and there were advances in research that we needed to to make. I knew that we needed to learn more about brain health. And so I went back to school and got my master's degree, mm-hmm. volunteered for the Alzheimer's Association where I learned so much. And I became a volunteer, stayed a volunteer until they hired me in 2012 to be the executive director of the Northeastern New York chapter. So I have a long history with um, caring for people in the community and with the wonderful work done by the Alzheimer's Association. Right, right. Association as well. Uh, So I do some community education workshops. So I'm delighted that I can meet you and also share my experiences and your experience with our audience. Um, uh, so why don't we, you know, dive into the topic of the day, which is uh, the, the, the main one that people are talking about is this uh, new drug, Maducanabab. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, let's talk about, you know, about, let's just walk, walk us through the issues. So first of all, um, in our previous conversation, I was, I was talking about like, what's with these names? What are these long, unpronounceable names? Mm-hmm. So, and you had a good like, ex- explanation. So why don't we start with that as to okay. why the name? Yeah. So, you know, I can't explain fully why the name aducanumab. It seems like a lot of these drugs come out with very long names. But what I can tell you is that when there is a drug under review that ends in MAB, the MAB stands for monoclonal antibody, which is a class of medications um, used for many, many years in cancer and being explored for other conditions as well. Right, right. So let's tell us about, you know, how the drug is intended to work. And then, you know, um, because, you know, this, you know, what everyone might say about it it is true that, you know, after about 20 years, there's been no progress on any sort of drugs that deal with the actual treatment of of the disease, but treatment of the symptoms of the disease. So this is the first one uh, that in a while that's uh, targeted toward Um, uh, slowing the disease disease itself. Right, right. Brain research is a very complicated area of science, as I'm sure you and your listeners fully understand. Um, That said, we do know that there are several hallmarks associated with Alzheimer's disease. And two of those main hallmarks are the overaccumulations of protein, one called amyloid and one called tau. Aducanumab's role is to reduce the overproduction of amyloid in the brain, again, one of those targets, or excuse me, one of those hallmarks of this disease. And so by targeting that, we're really looking at a therapy that might be disease modifying, which means we can change the course of disease moving forward, as opposed to things that we use for symptom relief. Right. So a lot of times I try to use the analogy um, of something like strep throat, where you can spray your throat and you can gargle with salt water and take lozenges, and those things relieve the symptoms a little bit. But until we actually um, use the antibiotic to eliminate the strep throat, we're really not making that robust change. Right. Right. Um, now, how was the treatment administered? And, and uh, there have been some potential side effects. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. So this medication is an infusion therapy. Infusion therapies have been a lot around for many, many years used in the cancer world, as so many people I'm sure are quite aware. Um, this would be an infusion that lasts between 45 and 60 minutes and would be administered every four weeks. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that one would receive at home one would go to an infusion center for the particular infusion. And as you noted, Ron, um, as with everything, I think I can't think of a single medication out there where we don't have some side effect profile. Right. There are some side effects associated with aducanumab as well. Um, and they are typically something called ARIA, which is an acronym for essentially a very um, a, an overproduction of fluid around the brain. Mm -hmm. That particular side effect is, is one that worries people and rightfully so. However, it has been shown to resolve in folks with um, with the course of time. So typically right. in, in four to 16 weeks or so, that particular side effect has, has shown a good deal of resolution. The other side effects are some dizziness, lightheadedness, and headache. Um, and again, short-lived in most circumstances. But that's why, of course, whenever we have anyone on any new uh, therapy of any kind, medication or whatever, we want to watch very carefully for the potential emergence of those early side effects and speak to our healthcare provider immediately. Right. Now, from what I understand, Beth, um, there's been a, you know, a fair amount of criticism and controversy over the approval, but not over the safety issues of it, in spite of the possible side effects. It seems to be, uh, from what I understand, about the trial size. Is that correct? Well, efficacy and trial size, I mm -hmm. think. So, so the you're, you're right. It certainly passed its basic safety uh, protocols, and there hasn't been a lot of discussion um, that this drug may not be safe. Um, the, the real concern is how effective is it? Okay. Um, and so one of the challenges we have in the Alzheimer's community generally, but we had with this trial as well, is low um, enrollment numbers in terms of clinical trials. In the Alzheimer's community, regrettably, only about 1% of our population impacted enrolls in clinical trials, and that's probably for a whole host of reasons. However, that does give you less data to look at than folks have for other particular style, or excuse me, other particular medications. And so that is one of the challenges as such it's hard to get as much efficacy data as we would like to have. You'd like to have a very large sample size and be able to demonstrate that a medication is efficacious in, mm -hmm. at, in that very large group. Right, right. Um, so that notwithstanding, though, I suppose that the part of the issue is that, well, there's been nothing in 20 years. Um, let's, let's, you know, let's examine it. Let's look at the possibility of it. Is that, am I correct in that assumption? You are. The Alzheimer's Association is very enthusiastic about the approval of aducanumab. Um, we understand that there are folks out there who have concerns, and we certainly respect that. But we believe that aducanumab um, 
brings us into a new area of hope that it will stimulate more people to be researching and looking for these disease-modifying therapies. We also hope that this approval will stimulate more people to become engaged in research trials and more researchers to continue to look at these therapies. So we look at this as being one piece of a big puzzle and we look at it as something that gives families hope and ignites the research community to continue to do more. Great, great. Um, now let's let's move on to just looking at uh, what we know in terms of you know the distribution and the um, the timetable and uh, and then of course the issue of cost. Mm-hmm. So we know a good deal. Um, Biogen made a commitment uh, very shortly after the approval to try to produce this medication in a substantive substantive way and get it out to the communities. But that's part of the equation, getting the medication out into the community. The second part is having folks trained to do the infusions um, and ensuring that this medication can be widely accessible throughout Mm -hmm. the United States. We just witnessed a little bit of the challenges that we face in that particular area with a distribution of the COVID vaccine, right? We saw small pockets of the United States that, that didn't have access like other suburban and urban communities did. So we want to ensure at the Alzheimer's Association that every American has access to this new therapy. And so the other part of that is affordability. This medication runs nearly $5,000 per monthly infusion for a total of about $56,000 a year. At the Alzheimer's Association, we are advocating for a possible reduction in that cost as well as approval by insurance companies for this particular intervention and therapy. Now, the FDA and the insurers have worked together to approve many, many other infusion therapies, again, in the cancer community, in the multiple sclerosis community, and we're hoping that they will provide the same consideration to us in the Alzheimer's community for aducanumab. Right, right. So what does the timetable look like then in terms of you know, I know it's, we're not sure, but what would right. be your our estimate at this point? Yeah, this would be a, a guess, but I would say having the in, the uh, actual medication out in communities within the next couple of weeks, and then hopefully having the, the diagnostic metric in place to enroll people, or excuse me, to give people, prescribe this for people, and then the insurance piece, I would say probably another maybe six to eight weeks beyond that. So I'd say late summer, early fall, we should be looking at folks getting this medication. With that said though, there have been a few infusion sites. Butler Hospital in Rhode Island gave their first infusion last week. So we may start to see it pop up in places throughout the country, but I think in terms of widespread distribution, we're still looking at at several weeks to maybe two months. Right, right. And if, if one thinks that uh, you could be a candidate for this. What mm-hmm. What's the next step? What should they do? What's the potential? That's a great question. The, the first thing one should do is set up an appointment as quickly as they can with their healthcare provider, because one 
really should qualify for this particular medication. The efficacy data does show that this medication is useful in people who have very, very early um, Alzheimer's disease or even the precursor to dementia, mild cognitive impairment. That is where the data was most robust. And those are the people that will benefit best from this medication. Sadly, regrettably, those people that are in the moderate or severe stage of this disease will not see the benefit um, from this particular drug. And so the recommendation from a healthcare provider would likely be that they that they not uh, participate. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of it does uh, focus on, you know, early intervention, early, you know, review, um, it's tough. I think a lot of, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. And of course, for my involvement in the association, I think that, you know, there's a reluctance, you know, there's a, a certain unfortunate stigma, you know, to acknowledgement of it. Um, as you mentioned, uh, only 1% of the um, of Alzheimer's population, you know, participates in um, in, te- in trials, as opposed to, I think you mentioned to me, like 30, 35% for other diseases. Yeah, absolutely. High rates, over 30% in in many of the cancer, in the cancer fields. And again, a whole host of reasons for why that is possible. But in Alzheimer's disease, like in so many other conditions, if the disease has progressed to a point, people are not going to benefit from some of these innovative therapies. It was really highlighted um, on a, a, I was watching a few moments of the Today Show today mm-hmm. and saw a discussion about PSA levels, which of course signal prostate cancer. Right. And an actor that many of us know and, and like very much who has stage four prostate cancer as because he was diagnosed late, waited till he was nearly 60 to get his PSA test for the first time, as opposed to Al Roker, who was diagnosed at stage one and completely cured of this condition. So we we really want to be attentive to our overall health as early as possible. Right. Yeah, I think this is an issue, especially, I have to say, among men, who I think we tend to um, put it off, you know, and... uh, You know, I myself have gotten into the like, nah, just once a year at least, check your prostate, check this, you know, check your eyes, check your ears, check your prostate. You and know, check it, your memory. I mean, so no, now we're think. asking people, you know, over 60 to ask for that memory screen as well. It's a Medicare coverable item now, or over hmm. 65, I shall say. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll put that on my checklist. That's that's great. Great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> great. Um, so... Uh, now, there's a lot of other research out there, um, and uh, I, I'm aware of some of it. Um, there are at least two studies that I, that I think that uh, Alzheimer's has been involved with. Um, one is uh, known as the fin- well, the finger study in, in Europe, and then in the U.S. There's the um, similar U.S. pointer study. Um, so, but these are looking at basically um, non-medical interventions, but things that perhaps can have an impact on, on you know, the uh, risk factor for, for Alzheimer's. So um, we're going to take a quick break in, a, in, a, in a, about 30 seconds, Beth. But when we come back, uh, I want you to talk about some of these studies and what we're looking for in these studies and a little bit about um, uh, the objectives of Alzheimer's research. So, folks, we'll be back shortly with much more from Beth Smith-Bovin. Don't go away. You won't want to miss it. Mm-hmm. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reingold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, everyone, where we're talking with Beth Smith-Bowen of the Alzheimer's Association about the latest in Alzheimer's research, a topic of interest to many of us, especially those of us who are entering or well into our baby boom years. Um, so Beth, um, we were talking about um, treatments from aducanumab, the latest drug, but now let's talk a little bit more about the, the various priorities for research for the Alzheimer's Association in general. So there are several priorities. Why don't you run through them? And then um, as before the break, we mentioned two specific studies that were of interest, but let's talk first about what the basic approaches to research funding is for you guys. Sure. So the Alzheimer's Association is really targeting four areas with our science priorities. The first is to look at what we call basic or traditional science. And that's really kind of the work that happens in laboratories all over the nation, all over the world, to try to understand the basic mechanisms of disease. It is only through a good understanding of the mechanisms of disease that we are able to identify a diagnostic tool and then, of course, treatments that we hope will lead to a cure and ultimately strategies for prevention. So it all starts there in the basic laboratory with that work and revealing all of the components or the mechanisms, as we say, of disease. Right. And let's be clear that, that mm-hmm. uh, so the Alzheimer's Association was not involved in funding for the development of aducanumab. That's correct. Right. That's Good. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second priority for the Alzheimer's Association is to come up with that, um, the single affordable accessible biomarker test um, for Alzheimer's disease. And to explain that for a moment, what we are looking for in the Alzheimer's community is a blood test like we use um, in the area of insulin resistance and diabetes. So for example, I could take a small drop of blood and within moments identify whether or not an individual is insulin resistant and or has diabetes type 2. And that being able to diagnose someone affordably, accurately, and in a timely way has been critical to intervention and treatment for that particular disease. 
Now, in the Alzheimer's community, we do have two biomarker tests. However, they are either expensive or invasive or both, and Mm. so they are not widely available. At the Alzheimer's Association, our second research priority is to identify that particular test, maybe a blood test, maybe something else, that will help us make that early, accurate diagnosis and will be affordable for all Americans. Our third priority is to look at treatment strategies. And within the last 10 or 15 years, as you've alluded to, we have learned that the treatment for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias will likely be a combination of therapeutics like medication and lifestyle interventions that we'll talk about in a moment. And then our fourth priority is that prevention, those things that we can do to reduce our risk and or prevent the emergence of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Right, right. So let's talk about those two studies now um, Mm -hmm. that are sort of parallel. I guess one is sort of a follow-up study, just a verification study. Explain Mm -hmm. what these studies are about. Sure. So these particular studies, the finger study um, in Europe, as you indicated, and the U.S. pointer study are studies that are looking at lifestyle interventions. So in other words, taking a group of people and giving them a very therapeutic lifestyle plan. So a heart healthy diet, a regimen for aerobic exercise, um, the recommendation that there is no smoking, light to moderate alcohol intake, and regular cognitive stimulation. And they're looking at that group as compared to counterparts who are not abiding by those particular lifestyle changes to see whether or not this either prevents altogether or diminishes the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And so far, the data, the original data, not from Pointer, but from other studies that was shared at the Alzheimer's International Conference in 2019, indicated that by abiding by anywhere from two to five of these lifestyle interventions could result in anywhere from a 40 to 60% reduction in the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease or dementia, which is why Pointer is so important. We want to collect more data, find out more about the efficacy of these lifestyle strategies. Right, right. And in the presentation that I give about uh, for the association called uh, Healthy Living for Your Brain and Body, I talk about that. And one of the things that's interesting is that there really seems to be a strong cumulative effect you know, when all of these things are put together. So any one of them, I mean, it seems like exercise is really critical, but when you put these things all together, there's really, as you pointed out, a significant impact in reducing the risk factor. So that's absolutely right. And you're, you're absolutely right. The, um, the healthy diet and the exercise are probably the two most critical there, although I'm, I'm, I'm not the scientist to, to mm-hmm. say that. But the reason for that is that we've learned in recent years that heart disease is a real precursor or risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And when you think about that, it makes a lot of sense because 25% of the blood that's pumped by the heart goes directly to the brain. Right. If the heart isn't working well, then we are going to have diminished blood flow to the brain, 
we have the potential for a series of small strokes or a larger stroke, which of course is another risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. So heart health and brain health are strongly connected. And one of the best treatments for both of those things is going to be aerobic exercise. Right, right. And what I found interesting in particular was that it sort of combined exercise and diet um, with, with both cognitive uh, engagement and social engagement, which, you know, is an interesting factor of both, you know, physical and, 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 and um, lifestyle combinations that sort of makes sense. I mean, if you are socially and cognitively engaged, you're stimulating your brain, you're stimulating your body, and, and you're driving blood to the brain as well. So it makes sense. But, but I don't think that people thought quite that there would be quite such an impact of combining these factors. So it's really, it's really uh, an important study. And right. I guess the, the U.S. pointer study is still ongoing, right? Is that it right? sure is. Absolutely. A very short pause during COVID, but yes, that study is ongoing. Mm-hmm. And you really make a good point about the cognitive stimulation as well. Um, I think back over my many years with the Alzheimer's Association, and back in the day, the scientists didn't think it was possible for us to see stimulation or growth of new nerve cells. Right. Well, we've learned that that's not true. We've learned that indeed with cognitive of stimulation, particularly with um, taking the time to learn something new, mm-hmm. it does or can indeed stimulate the growth of new nerve cells, which is really exciting. Right, right. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we're learning a lot about, you know, our elder years. You know, I, I, um, I forget who I was talking to recently, but they were talking about, you know, three uh, three stages of, of our life, you know, childhood, adulthood, and elderhood, as opposed yeah. to declining adulthood. You know, uh, this notion that we can actually even rejuvenate, you know, to a certain capacity as we get older, I think is really interesting and hopeful, certainly for a lot of us. Uh, yeah, for a lot know, of us. Uh, I agree. Possibility. I completely agree. And I see people now and I look back at pictures from, you know, when my parents' generation were 40, 50, 60, 70, and it's just a, a whole different picture, not photographically, but from a profile perspective about what people are doing now um, versus what they were doing then. Right, right. Um, let's talk a little bit more about just the, the issues of clinic, clinical trials. Um, so we mentioned the gap in terms of getting Alzheimer's patients, mm-hmm. but, but how can we, uh, how can people, in, in addition to, you know, this, you know, this particular trial for aducanumab, um, you know, how can people participate in trials? How do they learn about it? How do they find out about it? Um, you know, are, are there particular programs and so forth? Sure. So there are two ways that people can learn about clinical trials. I will certainly recommend the Alzheimer's Association's program, which is called Trial Match. Mm -hmm. It's a free clinical trial matching site, and it's a terrific resource, not only for people who have Alzheimer's disease or their family members, but anybody who's interested in advancing brain science. So I'm participating right now in a longitudinal study that's sponsored by UCLA to look at my aging over the next seven years because I happen to have a risk factor for developing Mm. dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And it's a way that I can participate in advancing the science. Mm -hmm. So one can 
elect to do that by going to our website, alz.org, or calling our 800 number and asking to enroll in trial match and then sort of creating a profile so you give your your age and any other demographics that you'd like to and then you select how far you're willing to go so I said that I would travel 150 miles or do Hmm. anything online to advance the science and everybody determines what will work for them and then I got an original list of anything that might be appropriate for me and anytime something else emerges that might be appropriate for me I get an email Mm -hmm. signifying that there's another study out there that I might be interested in so it's really a terrific program the other option for people is to simply learn about what research is available widely in their area by going to the the government's website which is clinical trials dot gov all yeah. one word clinical trials dot gov interesting i wasn't aware of that site that's that's good to know yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and there i guess there are other organiz- national organizations too there's the all well the alzheimer's association which i understand is the the, the largest uh non-profit um contributor to research that's right yes there's also the alzheimer's foundation of america there mm-hmm. you know and there are lots of local groups too we have a couple of them here in long island that are, that are actually very active I think they contribute to research, but they also contribute to um, support groups um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, other activities, uh, you know, fundraising, sure. but but um, you know, caregiver support and so forth. Um, do, do you want to talk a little bit about broadening about the Alzheimer's Association? What sorts of other activities they're involved in? You know, well, in, I would research? love to do that. All right. So I um, the Alzheimer's Association. Um, has a dual mission. And that's one of the things I think that makes me proudest of being part of this organization. We have a vision to create a world without Alzheimer's disease. And our mission is to eradicate the disease through the advancement of research. And we work relentlessly to do that in so many different areas, including, of course, raising funds to support research. But in addition to that, we recognize fully that we have a responsibility to um, provide and enhance care and support for the 6.2 million Americans and Mm -hmm. their caregivers who are currently living with this disease. And again, that's why I'm so proud to work for the Alzheimer's Association. As you mentioned, Ron, there are many, many good organizations out there doing fine work, Um, but I I am happy that I particularly work for one that has the, the duality of the mission. And to that end, again, we have a a huge research arm within our organization, but we also advocate um, at both a state and federal level for policies and protocols that will benefit people affected by this disease. We offer six common programs through our care and support division. We are working tirelessly to expand our services into diverse and underserved communities and create health equity for those folks that are disproportionately impacted by Alzheimer's disease as well. So we have many priorities and many wonderful people working in a nationwide network of over 75 chapters to ensure that everybody has access to our programs. Right. Yeah, I think this has become a big issue in recent years, just the realization of, of access and that, you know, through structural issues and many of them not intentional, mm-hmm. but that, um, 
you know, that's that's become a big issue. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and it's come up, of course, with the distribution of the COVID vaccine, sure. uh, but I think also for lots of other areas. Um, and I think that that's been something that that's worth pursuing and figuring out how to get information out. It's not always easy. I've been in, involved in a number of efforts where, you know, people say, well, how do people find out about this? You know, and, and my usual response is, Every way you can think of, <laughs> That's right. you know, it's That's not right. it's not one strategy. It's online. It's uh, in person. Well, of course, we were stuck with COVID for a while, but but um, you know, there there are lots of options now, and, and I think actually, you know, so one of the the um, well, I think I would say unforeseen, you know, if you want to say benefits of the this you know horrific pandemic has been just the realization. Uh, of you know the opportunities to really get information out online, uh, and or at least in hybrid formats, you know where you have online as well as you know in-person um, uh, presentations, uh, which really can en enlarge the audience. And, and often, you know, I think that uh, that the participation in in my online webinars um, for the association probably had actually a broader participation than in person just because people could get there, you know, right. they can, you know, so, and I think that's going to continue. And I so too. I think that people can really you know, look forward to that, you know, uh, availability of information. Um, I think that the, uh, the couple other online tools, I think that uh, the Alzheimer's Association website has, I want to just point out that, you know, there's the Alzheimer's navigator, right? Um, yep, that's absolutely right. So these particular programs are ones that can help link you to the services in your area. And so local chapters will update those particular tools so that we ensure that anybody who contacts our helpline, which is that 1-800 number, rather than contacting the local chapter itself, will get the most current um, information about programs and services in their area. Right. And then there's, I guess, there's a... Uh... Yeah, so it helps caregivers, you know, sort of create personalized action plans. And then right. there's the... Oh, the Care Finder, which... Right. Right, Care Finder actually sends you to the actual facilities where Navigator helps you prepare for what things to look for in your community and how to create a home plan or when to look at other service models or providers or people to help you navigate this journey. Right, right. And I guess the last thing I wanted to think, mention was the All's Connected, right, the message board. Yes, absolutely. So a great way for, again, if a caregiver or an individual is not part of a support group, um, this is a, a way for people to connect to um, advice from others. Right, right. Yeah, there's lots of stuff out there and, and people just um, need to pay attention. I think that, um, you know, um, one of the issues, uh, you know, just going back to our earlier conversation is just the, the notion of early detection and really um, mm -hmm having people aware of this. I think, um, you know, th this is um, and one of the things that, um, uh, that's that been clear to me is that, uh, you know, there's sort of duality of recognizing that Alzheimer's is not a normal, normal part of aging. You know, if it were, then we'd all get Alzheimer's, which is not true, but age that's is right. a risk factor. Right. That's absolutely right. And age is the number one risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. And when people ask me about the prevalence of this disease and I say, well, 49% of people over the age of 85 will develop Alzheimer's disease. That's not the end of the story, though, because 51% 
of people will not develop right. Alzheimer's disease. And so to your point, Ron, it's critical for all of us to understand that this is not a normal part of aging. It is indeed a disease. And I often will say as well that um, when you think about it, <clears throat> that almost everybody you talk to is able to identify a parent or a grandparent or a neighbor or someone who is in their advanced 80s or 90s or 100 years old, and they right. refer to them as being sharp as a tack. <laughs> right, right. And I say to folks all the time, sharp as a tack is normal aging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what we want to see. Right. Alzheimer's disease is not normal aging. And the sooner that we identify the warning signs and obtain a diagnosis, the better suited we will all be for engaging folks in treatments and or research to advance future treatments. Right, right. So we'll be coming up to our, our last segment shortly. We're going to be taking another break. Um, but during this time, I think I want to go back and just talk about, I know we've gone over it, but just this, the issue of early detection, just sort of deeping, to taking a deeper dive into that. Um, because I think this is, you know, it's worth repeating. It's critical. And what we mean, I mean, and I think a lot of people get confused and worried about, well, um, am I on the verge of Alzheimer's? And a lot of times, of course, you're not. But so when we take, when we come back, I'll be talking much more with Beth um, Smith-Boven. The Alzheimer's Association, uh, you won't want to miss this last section, section. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mack. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks, where we're still talking with Beth Smith-Bowen on the Alzheimer's Association about the latest Alzheimer's research. And in our last segment, I just wanted to review some of some of what we were talking about before about um, looking at um, early detection issues, which are so critical in dealing with uh, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And um, basically, the you know, the our reluctance to really look at it. And, and basically, maybe talk a little bit about... Um, 
what what people what people should look for in terms of early detection signs and what may be confusing but not to worry about Right. So this is a great topic because um, this is one of the trickiest aspects of Alzheimer's disease. And and when I say tricky, I mean that the early warning signs, the early symptoms of this disease can be puzzling for so many people because so many people have that expectation that it's normal to begin to forget things as we age. And to some extent, that's true. A mild amount of forgetting things or misplacing things can be normal. And so creating this distinction between what is normal and what isn't is one of the most frequently asked questions that we receive. So let me talk for a minute about the particular memory loss that we see specific to Alzheimer's disease. And it really is a memory loss where individuals struggle with storing or making new memory. So the memory loss that we see in this particular population is one where people can remember things very, very well that happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but they may mix up details about very current events. So whether or not they took their medications or whether they had breakfast or did they see their son last night. When we start to see these particular types of memory changes, that should be the notion that that's one warning sign for us. But there are nine others. And some of the other warning signs are repeating the same story over and over again. And that happens because individuals don't recall, they don't store the memory that they already told you that story. Sometimes people seem confused about details or places where they may have recently visited. That can be another warning sign. Having difficulty with um, word retrieval or finding the words that you want to say or naming something is another warning sign. Difficulty with calculations or bill paying. Difficulty with complex recipes for a terrific cook. Another sign that something isn't quite right. At the Alzheimer's Association, we urge people, the minute they've identified one or two changes in a loved one, in a neighbor, in a friend, to please go to our website, look at those 10 warning signs. And if you can check off a couple of those, please talk to your healthcare provider about getting that early diagnosis. Right. I mean, I think that, the, you know, there are certain, you know, normal issues. You know, I think that, you know, one of uh, my, my favorite, uh, you know, segments I've listened to once before, it was just actually on, a, on this so-called car talk, <laughs> which the, the, the folks, the, besides talking about cars, talked about a lot of other things, including, uh, you know, they were um, one segment they did on, on words that don't exist but should. And their word they had was destination which is right going into a room and forgetting why you went into that room. And I think that that's something that a lot of us, you know, are, you know, feel afflicted by. And it happens. I think there are lots of things that happen in in our, our daily lives that there's just a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, uh, hectic schedules. And I think a lot of these things are normal. I think uh, where it's, you know, as you pointed out, where, where it becomes, you know, a more serious matter is when you can't, you know, recall at all, you know, 
Yeah. So I think, Ron, you make a really good point. And the the destination piece, I, I love the way you said that. It happens to me. It happens to everyone from time to time. I have a pantry in the basement of my house and I've run down to get something out of the pantry. And by the time I get there, I forget what I went down there for. Right. But here's the difference. When I run back up the stairs and I see that I have something on the stove that needed a can of tomatoes, it brings that memory back. So in essence, those of us that have sort of a normal cognitive change as we age have that ability to cue something back. And that's not the same situation in people that have Alzheimer's disease and dementia. They have difficulty with cueing that information back. And that really is quite an important distinction. So many of us are going to go to the pantry and forget what we went for. Many of us are going to misplace our keys from time to time. But we find those things or we're cued back into action. It's when those things begin to interfere with our functional life. I hear from families every day that, for example, they have a parent who was a meticulous and timely bill payer Mm -hmm. and suddenly they're three months behind in paying all the bills. Those are warning signs. And so when we take that and we add to it changes in memory and repeating stories, that's when it's time to take action. Right, right. Any thoughts on on how one, uh, you know, this is the, the difficult family conversations I mm-hmm. think that people need to have in terms of approaching loved ones, uh, in terms of dealing with these issues or, yeah. or just approaching the subject. Of, I mean, I guess that there are some things that are more um flagrant than others in terms of, you know, deciding whether, you know, time to take away the car keys, that that's a whole conversation. But well, this is a really important point. And families ask that question all the time. How do I raise this issue with my parent or my loved one? And so we suggest a couple of things. Some people are actually more responsive than one would think to hearing this information or 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 having the concern raised because many people understand, they know, they feel like something isn't quite right. And so I tell families all the time, try to present this in as positive a way as possible to say, you know, I've noticed these little changes in memory. I'm thinking that we should get this checked out because there may be action we can take. There may be something that we can do. Now, for other people, though, you're going to run up to resistance, people that don't want to have that evaluation. And in that particular circumstance, I often recommend to families that they reach out to the healthcare provider mm-hmm. and ask the healthcare provider to provide a memory assessment during the next routine visit and then try to move that routine visit along and and see if we can go at it sort of from the back door, if you will, because the screening, that assessment is critically important to making sure that people are engaged early in not only potential treatment, but in planning for their future with this journey. Right. Now, is that generally still going first to the the general practitioner and then to a neurologist? Or That's who? exactly right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. Start with your general provider, just like we would with most anything, right? Mm-hmm. So um, aside from acute, like a broken leg or something, if we're worried about fatigue or something else, we typically start with our general practitioner who then sends us along to the specialty group. So that's right. the right path. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I think that, but I think that there, you know, we're coming up with solutions. We're coming up with caregiving you know, support 
Um, you know, I think there are lots of options that we're exploring. We're learning a lot more about the disease, uh, about the, the options for caregiving. I think that this is, um, you know, something that I, I think that does need advocacy, though, in, in, in Washington and in, in our case and in Albany, New York. But are there any efforts that um, we're engaged in uh, and through the Alzheimer's Association in terms of advocacy for, you know, increased funding or programs of that sort? Sure. So we've been uh, tremendously successful at the Alzheimer's Association in increasing funding threefold over the last seven wow. years mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's disease research. And that really is thanks to volunteers like you, Ron. Um, we had a nationwide network of over a thousand advocates who storm their way to Washington every year uh, to advocate for both the advances in research and the policies and procedures that will help people people with this disease, including approval for screening under Medicare. Right, right. Um, so how, where does that stand in terms of screening? So that that is not in place yet or is it? It is. Medicare? Absolutely. Oh, it is. Yep. Okay. Then that was, again, thanks to the advocacy of so, so many folks around this country. But it is part of the annual wellness exam under your Medicare contract for those folks listening that have Medicare. So Sometimes, regrettably, we have to ask for things that are covered. Um, and and so I, I hope that anybody listening today that hasn't had that routine screening will do so as, right. as part of their coverage. Right. right. I guess the last piece that um, we're also engaged with on in some level is the cost of it and, and basically having a much more integrated plan of long-term care. I think there's an, another piece that we're, that's we're working on a national level. I think there's some legislation now for for long term long term care support. Um, but yes, yeah, that certainly is a challenge, and um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the exorbitant costs associated with long term care, particularly in any kind of a. a, a a long-term care setting that involves, um, I don't want to say institutionalization, that's a bad word, but involves right. residents. So assisted yeah. living residences and um, and nursing homes are expensive because they, you know, staff is, is widely available to people. But again, that's a giant expense for those facilities. So we right. have to look at um, ensuring that people are protected and have access to that critical care if they need it. Right. Great. Well, I know there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, I think uh, we're going to have to wind up today. I, I want to just thank you, Beth, for um, your tremendous uh, thoughts and uh, advice and uh, counsel in this area. It's certainly going to be a topic of continuing interest to millions of Americans as we enter the second half of life. Um, but that's where we'll, we'll leave it for today. Um, um, and uh, let me just say that um, um, if you missed your conversation today with Beth. You can listen to it on a podcast by going to voiceamerica.com, searching for my show, 45 Forward, or go to my website, rowellresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab. Now, if people have questions for you, Beth, what's the best way to reach you? So people can reach me at the Alzheimer's Association. Um, my email is a fairly lengthy one, but uh, because of the hyphenated name, it is E for Elizabeth Smith hyphen bovin b-o-i-v-i-n at a-l-z dot o-r-g but your listeners can also call our um, 24-hour helpline at 
272-3900 and talk to anyone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including asking to get a message to me. Great. So that's it for today, folks. Um, but be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Um, we're going to have another fascinating show. So don't miss it. Until then, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week. 